this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 18. That's where we're studying on Sunday morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And uh, get their attention by waving, and they'll put one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this morning. Acts chapter 18, we'll pick things up in verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to be uh, to depart from Rome, Claudius being the Roman emperor at the time. And so he came to them. And so, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he stood, uh, shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. And then Crispus always reminds me of a cereal. But uh, sorry to plant that thought in your mind. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Then Gallio was proconsul when he was of Achaia. The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio uh, said uh, to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourself, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat, and all of the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Uh, but Gallio took no uh, notice of these things. And so Paul still remained a good while. And then he took leave of the brethren, sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Crencia, for he had taken a vow. And then he came to Ephesus and left uh, Aquila and Priscilla there. But he uh, himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means meet this coming feast, keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down then to Antioch. And so ends his second missionary journey. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these 22 verses. We pray that um, you would 
teach us from these verses. We pray that the lessons that are bound up in Paul's ministry here in uh, Corinth and what they have to do with us, that you would uh, speak them into our lives and into our uh, ministries and into our Christian life as well. Please help us to hear your voice through these uh, verses this morning by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that I like about Acts chapter 18 is it provides us with a very, very personal look at the Apostle Paul. So much of the book is uh, given to one event after another, the planting of a different church or one kind of crisis that arises and so forth as it, as it all unfolds. But one of the things that I like uh, within the Bible is when we get these kind of uh, biographical sketches of uh, the men and the women that God uses. Here is the Apostle Paul used by the Holy Spirit, not so, just so mightily in the book of Acts, but also used him uh, to be the author of 13 of the New Testament epistles. Well, this is somebody I want to know a little bit about. I want to know what makes him tick. I want to know what causes him to continue through all of the hardship that he faced in his calling and in his walk uh, with the Lord. And so it provides a very valuable, instructive glimpse at uh, this brother of ours called the Apostle Paul. Many things that we can learn uh, from him. In Acts chapter 18 as well, uh, the, it supplies us with a record of the birth of the church at Corinth, a church that is well known to us as Christians because Paul will later write two uh, corrective epistles. They were a very uh, drama-laden church, <laughs> very um, kind of required a lot of attention. But the nice thing about the two letters that he wrote to them is he addressed so many problems that we face today. And so that instruction has uh, abode through 2,000 years of history and continues to help us to this day. And so a very uh, interesting church that got established, familiar to everyone who becomes familiar with the Word of God, and this is the story behind its birth. The city of Corinth was an interesting one in Paul's day. Uh, it was famous for many things, famous as a political center. It was the uh, government capital of that particular uh, uh, state of the Roman Empire, so it had all of the kind of uh, power and money and prestige that comes to a city that is a capital of, of anything. It was also a commercial center uh, because of its geographical location in the city, uh, in the country of Greece. It lay on an isthmus that was called the Corinthian Isthmus. Uh, most of the traffic that occurred east and west between the city of Rome and all of Asia as the traffic would pass back and forth, most of it uh, made its way through the city of Corinth. And so Corinth became very wealthy as a trading center. They knew how to make money and they knew how to spend uh, money. It was also famous for its fascination with uh, sports and art, architecture as well. Many of you are familiar with the Corinthian Column, uh, named after, you know, the city of Corinth. And, but most of all, it was famous throughout the entire Roman Empire uh, for its drunkenness and its sexual immorality. In fact, uh, you know, Rome was no uh, innocent empire, uh, but Corinth 
was, was famous within the Roman Empire as being the most wicked city in the entire empire. If a Corinthian was ever portrayed on stage in Greece, he was always, without exception, shown uh, drunk. Uh, the Greeks had a, uh, a saying uh, that they would talk about somebody and they would say, oh, they're playing the Corinthian, which meant that they were living a life of drunkenness and, uh, you know, gross sexual immorality. In the city of Corinth, there was a, because it was a meeting place of the East and the West, and uh, so many sailors, so much traffic, so much commerce on, in addition to the city that it, that it was. It had uh, uh, temples and, and so forth to every kind of god that there could possibly uh, be. And it was the center of the worship of uh, Venus or Aphrodite, had a major temple there in Corinth, and the priests of Venus uh, there in, uh, in Corinth owned more than 10,000 and how long it takes to count to 10,000. They owned 10,000 prostitutes and sodomites who were rented out day by day to the thousands of sailors uh, which the ships brought uh, in commerce uh, from all around the ancient world uh, into the city. But it wasn't just the sailors. Uh, that was just a very small part of a very large picture uh, sexual immorality, the drunkenness that fairly permeated the entire city. We might compare it to our own Las Vegas, but it wouldn't even begin to give us a glimpse at uh, the degradation of, of Corinth. Uh, Las Vegas uh, look, would look like a quilting bee uh, for what it is today compared to uh, what was allowed and uh, uh, and what prospered in this way in ancient Corinth, in the Roman Empire. And I think it's important to know all of this, to realize that this is the city that the Apostle Paul walked into, this Jewish rabbi, when he uh, walked into there, what he saw, what he heard all around him uh, as he comes to Corinth. And I think it's interesting to realize that when Paul wrote uh, his letter to the Romans, he wrote it from Corinth. So when you read what is just a blistering expose of sin in Romans chapter 1, and it is famous uh, for that, that, that denunciation uh, of sin, he didn't have to resort to his imagination or sit down and wonder, you know, what can I do to let people know how serious sin is and so forth. All he needed to do as, as he lived there in Corinth for this period of time, was to simply open his front door, unshutter his window, and open it up where he was living, and all of it was being played out before him, uh, his very eyes. And yet this is where the Holy Spirit would use him to establish one of the most famous churches in the first century, a large church. You say, how do we know it's a large church? We know it was at least large enough to be able to divide itself into factions. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. It takes a church of some kind, a size, to be able to do that. And Paul wasn't kidding when he later wrote to them in his first uh, letter. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and such were, past tense, speaking to these Christians, some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. I mean, what God did in the city of uh, Corinth. Now, in verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to a very uh, godly Jewish couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. We're told in the passage that they had previously lived in uh, the city of Rome, but that a persecution arose in Rome against the Jews in general, but most specifically against Jewish Christians there uh, by the Roman Emperor Claudius. And they were driven then from Rome and to the city of Corinth. Historical records tell us that the action taken by Claudius uh, in response to some kind of Jewish unrest in the city of Rome had to do with uh, impulsore Christos. In other words, there was a division among the Jewish population in Rome over the preaching of Christ. And so it appears that Aquila and Priscilla, by the time they come to Corinth, they are already Christians. They do not become converts as a result of Paul's ministry. Leading scholars uh, believe that this unrest in the Jewish community in Rome at the time was over the issue of Jesus as Messiah, and because the Jewish Christians would have borne the brunt of uh, this edict that was uh, given out and viewed as the cause of of the dispute, uh, then they would have been driven, you know, most avidly out of the city of Rome. And yet somehow Paul comes into contact with them. And we don't know how that happens. It's interesting to stop and think in your own life here this morning about how you met your husband or your wife or how you uh, met uh, the two or three people who are your very best friends in life. Usually it happens in school or it happens in a workplace or a neighborhood or some kind of a, of a common interest, that kind of thing uh, occurs. And it, it looks very happen chance when it, when it does and you look and say, well, this happened and this happened and then I ran into him here and somehow we just hit it off and he's been my friend ever since, you know. But it's interesting how these kind of relationships are birthed and birth even within the body of Christ. Uh, Paul had a lot in uh, common uh, with uh, Aquila and with Priscilla. They were both Jewish. Uh, they were both Christians. They, uh, he with Aquila, they shared the same livelihood, which was uh, tent making. And so somehow in the course of all of these things, uh, their paths crossed and they develop a relationship that Paul is going to treasure all of his life. He speaks of them repeatedly in the epistles and always very, very uh, favorably. It appears that uh, upon developing this friendship, that they invited Paul to live with them during his stay uh, there in uh, Corinth. We should take uh, note of that term, uh, the term tent making, uh, that it comes here uh, from verse 3. For they were, uh, by occupation, they were tent makers. And uh, we know from uh, multiple places in the New Testament that Paul speaks repeatedly of the fact that he went into many cities and uh, through his own hands. He um, uh, uh, provided for his own living in order that he might uh, put food on his own table, a roof over his own head, and then uh, establish a church there 
uh, free of any kind of giving of the people within, within that community. What we don't know, and we only know from here, is that the occupation that he engaged in was as a tent maker, a leather worker. And he in Aquila made tents out of leather, sold them, and that's how he kept food uh, on his table. And so tent making, we talk about uh, pastors or evangelists, or we talk about missionaries who are tent makers. It always refers to someone who is gone in some place, they have a call of God upon their lives, and they hold some kind of an occupation to support themselves with in order to then fulfill uh, God's calling uh, upon their lives. This was something that uh, every Jewish family made sure that every Jewish boy uh, learned how to have some kind of a trade that would put food on the table. Even if it was a child like Paul, and Paul from very early on had an interest in religious things, his training was to become a rabbi, but even if you had a deep interest as a boy in theology, it looks like this guy's going to be a teacher, he's going to be a rabbi and so forth, they always taught him a trade uh, that could translate into uh, you know, again, making a living, putting food upon the table. So, uh, you know, he didn't, it's kind of like having a, 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 a PhD in English art. That's great, uh, but you better know how to be a plumber or be something else that uh, you can actually get a job with that and, uh, and, and be able to uh, support yourself. An old Jewish proverb was, love work. He who does not teach his son a trade uh, teaches him robbery. Now notice in verses uh, 4 through 8, we see a similar pattern occurring in Paul's ministry in Corinth, familiar, similar to all of the other cities that he's been visiting on his second uh, missionary journey. First of all, we see in verse 4 that he finds a Jewish uh, synagogue where he then reasons with uh, the Jews and the God, Gentile God-fearers there, reasons with them from the Scriptures showing Jesus to be the promised uh, Messiah. We're told further that the result of this preaching he persuaded, and that's a reason word. He reasoned with them as a result of the reason they were persuaded. Uh, he persuaded both Jews and Gentiles uh, concerning Jesus as the Messiah. And at some point in verse 5, uh, Silas and Timothy rejoin Paul. They uh, had begun, Silas had with Paul at the beginning of this missionary journey. Timothy had joined them very early on. And you remember that he had left them in the city of Berea when he had been driven out by persecution in order that they might uh, further uh, take care of and to uh, nurture that new church that had started in Berea. Paul went to Athens and then sent message back to have Silas and, and Timothy to come and join him, and now uh, they, uh, they do join him. Now, we know as we put the pieces together from other parts of the New Testament that when Silas and Timothy came to Paul here in Corinth, they brought him very, very good news. Uh, they brought him the report that the Christians in Thessalonica, not just Berea, but also in Thessalonica, that they were growing in the faith, and the church was growing and doing good despite all of the persecution that they were facing. And you imagine when, think about the ministry that God has called you to, 
there's always discouragement in it. But imagine here, Paul is being driven from city after city after city. He's spending his life in this calling that God has upon his life and to receive the news. What an encouragement it would be to him that not only is the church surviving in Thessalonica, but it's prospering. It's taken root. God is working there. A tremendous uh, encouragement it would have been to him. The second thing that they did by means of an encouragement is they brought a financial gift to Paul from the church church at Philippi. And here's another church. He spends a very small length of time in Philippi, and yet something deep and and permanent has been established. And they think fondly about Paul, and they decide, let's put some money together and uh, send that gift to him. And so, uh, this gift comes from the Christians in Philippi, and it allowed Paul then to abandon tent-making as a means of, of supporting himself and then to give himself to testifying Jesus to Jesus as the Messiah in Corinth full-time and without any kind of distraction. And so all of this good news and uh, the financial provision, the moral support of now having Silas and Timothy, his two co-labors come alongside him, Uh, and and all uh, the excitement of that is probably what's referred to in verse 5 where Paul is emboldened, he's encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and he throws himself into the work at Corinth with even greater zeal. And of course, this is the power of encouragement in uh, Christian service. And we see the effect that it has, even upon… I think the average person would probably look at Paul and say, he has no need of being encouraged. He'd probably take it as some kind of a slight, you know, but he he wasn't that way. Uh, Encouragement uh, meant a lot to him. It does to all of us, doesn't it, in our service? And, uh, And it had this beautiful, strong effect upon Paul, and it's very, very precious, I think, to be able to look at it and to see instantly the uh, emotional and spiritual uh, excitement and, and uh, uh, undergirding that it, that it had within his life, the response uh, of his life to it. Now, in verses 6 through 8, it, it speaks to us about the opposition that uh, Paul is, uh, runs into there. And so, great things are happening, and people are getting saved. But at some point, and doubtless uh, Jews, religious Jews within uh, the synagogue, uh, because Paul speaks of the fact, he says, I will go now to the Gentiles. And so this harassment is where it always came from on his missionary journeys from the religious Jews within the synagogue and probably out of what is now a, a very familiar motive on their part of jealousy of the effectiveness of Paul and his, his preaching of the gospel. And so we're told that they opposed Paul and they blaspheme Jesus in verse uh, 6, we're told that. Now, when their opposition of Paul turned into blasphemy against Jesus, now, uh, this is no longer an honest discussion. And so, the apostle Paul, that was enough for him. He knew his ministry was over, and so they have hardened their heart to his message. So, we're told that he shook his garment, that's the equivalent of uh, uh, wiping the dust off of your feet, uh, as as Jesus had taught. Jesus said, uh, and whoever will not receive you uh, nor hear your words when you depart from that house or that city, shake the dust from your feet 
Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so when Paul declares himself to be innocent of the blood of these that he's been speaking to, he is echoing the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament and he de- in declaring himself innocent of bearing any responsibility for the judgment that would ultimately come upon them for rejecting Jesus as the Christ. And so he told them the truth, and they were alone, they alone were responsible for their rejection of it. And in doing all of these things that he does here, in terms of the shaking of the garment and all, he's making very clear to them the seriousness of their decision. Uh, to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And, and he further declared that he would now leave the ministry that he had in the synagogue and he would take the gospel uh, to the Gentiles into the city. And he has been faithful now to a pattern in his ministry and a pattern in the New Testament to bring the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So he brought it to the Jew and to the god Now he brings it to uh, the, the uh, Gentiles in the light of their rejection. It's important to uh, notice once again here in all of this that once a witnessing experience, the sharing of the gospel with another person, once it turns into an argument or a conflict or blasphemy of some kind, that witnessing experience is over. And it's time to wrap that one up walk away and go find someone else who is willing to listen to you. And that's exactly what Paul does here. When we share the gospel with somebody, uh, all we are doing is we are presenting to them the offer of salvation from God. We are offering them a gift from God of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and a personal relationship with God. And if a person doesn't want that, then fine. Then we leave them with the Holy Spirit and we move on to the next person. It's very easy when someone begins to blaspheme Jesus or blaspheme God or begins to speak offensively to us uh, to uh, just want to pretend that we aren't a Christian for 10 minutes and, uh, you know, fight fire with fire, but we're not supposed to do that. Paul himself would uh, later write to Timothy in this regard, and he said, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. We're offering a gift. People don't want it. What are we going to do? In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so Paul, as he promised, he went to the Gentiles. He didn't have to go far because one of the uh, Gentile God-fearers who had come to know the Lord Jesus in this short period of time in the synagogue happened to own the home uh, right next door to the synagogue. And uh, so he invited Paul to make that the center now for the continued evangelization of Corinth. And then soon Crispus, I've ruined his name for you, haven't I? You're hungry. So soon Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, 
and the ruler would mean kind of a, the head deacon of, of the synagogue. He uh, comes to faith in Jesus as well, and so did his entire household, speaking of his family and also of his servants. And they begin now to attend the new Christian church here uh, next door. And then we're told here uh, that in the passage that the gospel just simply exploded from there in Corinth. Many men and women in that spiritually and morally dark environment hearing the gospel, they put their faith in Jesus, and they were also baptized. Now, while all of these things, exciting things, were happening externally, Internally, the Apostle Paul was in the middle of a very, very great personal crisis. When we look at the Apostle Paul's life in Scripture, we tend to do so as a spectator. We see him going from here and here and here and there and there, and this is what he did and so forth. But put yourself in his shoes for a moment at as all of this is unfolding in the city of Corinth. And if we put ourselves in Paul's shoes, all of this is simply the repeat of a very, very familiar pattern to him. I go to a new city. I go to the synagogue, and I reason from the Old Testament Scriptures showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. I preach the gospel to them and call on them to put their faith in Jesus for salvation. A bunch of people then get saved. This then provokes the jealousy of the religious Jews. And then right about at this point is when my beating usually occurs. Or when there is some kind of a riot that erupts in the entire city with a desire of tearing me from limb to limb. And it happened in Paul's ministry over and over again in Antioch of Pisidia, in Derby, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea. And when we come to chapter 18, verse 9, this is exactly where Paul was in that same progression in the city of Corinth. He had seen this movie over and over and over again, and he had seen how it had ended over and over again, and he was afraid. We don't often think about Paul in terms of being afraid, but he was afraid. Why else would Jesus tell him in his, this vision not to be afraid unless he was afraid? And Paul candidly admits it himself. In his first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, he admit, admitted it in saying, and I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And why else would Jesus tell him in verse 10 that no one will attack you to hurt you unless he was afraid that he was about to be attacked and to be hurt once again? I think it's important to stop and think about the cumulative effect of having been kicked out of Antioch and Thessalonica, Berea, the beating and the imprisonment in Philippi, being stoned and left for dead at the city limits of Derby, 
And in fact, as he is in this place in the city of Corinth, his wounds from the beating in Philippi had probably only just recently healed. And however strong a person might be in the face of this kind of thing the first time or the second time, but when it happens again and again, and to live under the constant threat of violence, and to look at any crowd then from then on, and to know that it could happen again and happen quickly. You think about the PTSD that might be involved in all of this, the post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm certainly not saying that the Apostle Paul suffered from PTSD, but what I am saying is that he didn't endure all of this on these missionary journeys as a machine, as a cyborg, but he did so as a human being, every bit the same human being that we are. And the beatings and the threats and the physical and the verbal persecution, the constant opposition to the work that he was doing, the opposition that manifested itself in the physical realm and then in the spiritual realm, it affected Paul in the same way that it would affect any of us in this room or any other person in the world. And here in these verses of 9, 10, and 11, we get to see his humanity. He is afraid. And he hits the wall. And he's afraid of being physically attacked one more time. And further, this fear is tempting him to stop speaking, to go silent. Why else would Jesus encourage him uh, but speak and do not keep silent unless it was so? And Paul is in desperate need of encouragement, and not just any encouragement, but an encouragement that comes uh, from the Lord alone. And I think that most of us as Christians in this room have been in a place in our life where we're in desperate need of encouragement and the trial is so deep, the trial is so difficult that we find ourselves in, that as wonderful as the encouragement might be from a friend or from a family member or a fellow Christian or from ten of them all put together, we realize that as wonderful as all of that might be, as powerful as it might be in some trials, it won't make a dent in this trial. I must hear something from the throne of God in this situation in order, to re, in order to regain perspective in the situation and to move forward in God's call upon my life, or I will not survive. Not my calling, uh, not anything in my life. And Paul finds himself in exactly that place. And so Jesus comes to him with the encouragement and the form of a vision. Now, fear is a very, very powerful emotion. Every single one of us is familiar with the emotion. We're familiar with the power uh, of it. And for some of us, we're more susceptible to it uh, than, than others. But for all of it, it is a powerful, powerful emotion in our lives. And the level of fear that Paul was experiencing here, the fear of man, 
the, the deep sense of danger and insecurity from some threatening physical circumstance is a truly awful, awful emotion to experience in its own right. But for the child of God, fear is not only an awful emotion to experience, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. How so? It is dangerous in that it can so take over our lives at a moment in time that we will then be tempted to take control of the direction of our lives, to take control of our decision-making, and then to begin to make all kinds of decisions in life concerning things that are large, concerning things that are small, and we make the decisions with one aim only. What will bring me the quickest relief from my fear? What will get me out of the circumstances that are the source of my fear the quickest? And that's the power of fear within our lives. And almost always it ends up it, uh, under this kind of a mo motivation, it ends up in very bad decisions that create circumstances that are even more fearsome. And that's why Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, the fear of man brings a snare. That's the fear Paul is experiencing at this time in his ministry. The fear that, the, that Paul was experiencing threatened here to lead him into exactly the wrong decision concerning his life and exactly the wrong direction related to his life. And that is to cease preaching the gospel in Corinth, probably shut down his ministry in Corinth 18 months before God intended it uh, to be so, then head home to his sending uh, church in Antioch when God knew that there was a multitude of people yet to be saved in the city of Corinth who would become saved, become part of God's family if Paul would only stay and continue to speak. There were great things right around the corner for the Apostle Paul. It's important for us to realize as Christians that God never ever uses fear in the form of the fear of man or in the fear of circumstances to direct us or to guide us. He simply never does it. Instead, he uses his word or some other kind of means of revelation, of vision as he uses it here, and his Holy Spirit and faith. And that's why the latter part of Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, goes like this. The fear of man brings a snare, and then here it is, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. I know that it is a very, very hard thing to do, but it is so important to resist the temptation to allow fear to drive our decision-making, and then under the emotion of fear to take control of the direction of our lives from God, to retake it back to ourselves 
with the sole goal of doing whatever we can to escape the emotional pain of fear as quickly as we can. And I'm convinced that God is speaking very specifically to some of us in that very place this morning in this regard. What we desperately need in that moment of fear when we want, it grips us, and now we want to just begin to make decisions. I know all about it, willy-nilly, in all directions. What's the quickest way out of this? My sense of self-preservation is as great as anyone else's. And what we desperately need at a time like that is to pull back from all of that and then to receive what Jesus brought to Paul here, some word from God that will calm our fears and then bring his perspective into our lives. Then second, is Paul, as Jesus does with Paul here, a reminder of his presence in our lives. And then third, the promise of future success. And that's what the Lord does with Paul. Jesus, his promises to him, verse 10, reminded Paul that he was with him. Paul, you are not in this alone. I am with you. And how important it is for us in a season of fear to personalize that ourselves, to put our own name in there and allow God to speak to us this morning. You are not alone in this. I am with you. And Jesus promised Paul that no one would attack him to hurt him and then told him the tremendous effectiveness of his life was right around the corner. And, and these same three things provide a tremendous uh, encouragement in our lives too. And God has provided powerful promises to us as well. Allow me to give you uh, three or four here. Uh, this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Don't you wish, there are certain passages in the Bible I wish I could read every time for the first time, <laughs> to always have the first time effect. And I think that sometimes Romans become such an old friend to us that it ceases to impact us the way that it ought. But allow these words now for where you are in life this morning and what you're facing, to allow these words to impact that circumstance in a fresh way. Paul writes this. Paul writes this. And he writes this after this crisis of fear in his ministry. He wrote the book of Romans later in his ministry. And what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? This is the attack element, isn't it? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, you can fill that in with your circumstance this morning. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. He is ransacking the universe to try and find something that can separate us from the presence and the love of God. And he said, none of these things shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a verse for someone. Isaiah 41, verse 10. You can write it in your notes by faith. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Some of us will let, let that sword of the Spirit uh, enter a little bit more fully. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul later wrote to Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And we almost always obsess with the timidity and the fearfulness of Timothy with the idea that Paul never experienced it. And yet that exhortation and that encouragement to Timothy came out of a gnosko, a knowledge by experience in Paul's life as well. Jesus spoke, in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's, my hand or my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That is, they are united together. Two-thirds of the Godhead in keeping us and protecting us and holding on to us in the depth of our trials. Now, Jesus can make these kind of promises to us and then keep them for the simple reason that Jesus alone, unlike all of our friends and family members who love us so much, Jesus is able to make these kind of promises and keep these promises for the simple reason that he is greater than every circumstance in our life that is producing fear. And because of that, he knows that he will act in our situation in such a way that each of his promises will be proven true in our lives. You see, that's a nice thing for a preacher to say. And it is. And I don't know what degree to which I have lived this in my life in comparison to any other Christian or servant of the Lord, but I think I've explored it fairly deeply. Now, Paul put 
his faith in verse 11 in Jesus' promises. And he obeyed Jesus' command to remain at Corinth. And he spends the next 18 months of his life ministering in Corinth, the second longest period of time that he would spend in any city in his missionary journeys. The only one that exceeded it was uh, the city of Ephesus, which we'll come to in his third missionary journey, where he stayed there for a period of three years. And Paul's trust in Jesus' promises to be faithful to him were completely vindicated in those 18 months. So many people coming to know the Lord within the city. Now, one of the things that this episode in Paul's life, this chapter, the season in his life, teaches us is that godly men and women are not men and women who never experience fear. That simply isn't true. Everybody does. Everybody does. But they draw upon God's grace and they continue in their calling and their Christian life anyway. And Paul did that and then discovered that there was an entire future laid out for him, infinitely superior to the path that his fear would have driven him uh, and, and placed him upon. We notice Jesus' faithfulness to his promise of protection to Paul in verses 12 through 17. Ultimately, what Paul feared would happen did happen. The religious Jews within the city brought him before the governor of the city, began to make false accusations against him, accusing him of teaching something that was against the law, the law of Rome. Here is this man teaching a religion in the city of Corinth, in a city of the Roman Empire that hasn't been approved by the Roman Empire yet, and and they're doing this, making this accusation simply because of Paul's effectiveness within the city. And it's the old, if you can't beat them fair and square, then you take them to court, right? And that's exactly what they did. And so this is the charge that they brought against him. The governor is a very wise man and, and known, you know, much is written about him in, in, in history, but he saw all of this for what it was, and it was not anything to do with some kind of a concern for Rome or Roman law or Roman culture, but that it, it was a personal and religious dispute between Paul and these religious leaders, and so he strongly rebuked the religious leaders that had brought Paul before him, and then he forcefully had them removed from his presence. Paul was about to open his mouth in his defense. He couldn't even get a word out before the governor jumped in in fulfillment of Jesus' promise related to Paul's life. And then the Gentile Greeks, were told in verse 17, they proceeded to uh, meet out upon the new ruler of the, the synagogue, the guy that had followed Crispus now, a man by the name of Sosthenes. He apparently brings all of this with the intention of Paul receiving another beating or being driven forcefully out of the city of Corinth, a repetition of everything that had happened over and over and over again uh, in, in, his, uh, in his life. And these Gentile Greeks, they, they took Sosthenes and they then uh, gave him the beating that he had intended for Paul. 
And probably as a result of bringing this kind of a a empty charge before the Roman governor. And in this miraculous turn of events, Paul recognized the hand of God in this. This is Jesus keeping his promise to me. And so Jesus will do in each of our lives concerning all of the promises in the volume of the book. It is interesting to note that it appears that the Sosthenes who took the beating there at, at, at the uh, courtroom, outside of the courtroom there in Corinth, that he later uh, evidently became a Christian because Paul uh, writes to him in his first letter to the church at Corinth and in the very first verse or two uh, speaks of him and speaks of him fondly. So he becomes a Christian. This is called beating evangelism. It's a, it's a little known... Uh, and then verses 18 to 23, it's a record of Paul's return to ascending church in Antioch. And as he goes, uh, uh, re- returns home from the second missionary journey, covering a, 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 a length of the journey being some 1,500 miles, and then it brings uh, thus an end to his second missionary journey. So let's close this morning with the encouragement to each of us here this morning and something to be reminded of as uh, when these kind of circumstances arise in our own Christian lives. Don't take control of your life out of the hands of God and into your own hands in a season of fear. And if you're in the middle of doing that today, stop. Don't make one more decision on the basis of fear. God never uses the fear of man or the fear of circumstances to guide our lives. He only uses his word and the Holy Spirit. And so back away, I encourage myself from any decisions that we're about to make under the influence of fear and instead seek a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, look for some promise of God's Word that applies to our situation and allow that then to guide our decision-making. And what an important word of encouragement this is and what a world of trouble it can deliver us from as we learn it and we heed it from his word this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, thank you for this record of the birth of this amazing church born in astonishing moral and spiritual darkness, the church at Corinth. Thank you, too, for the personal glimpse that you 
give us here of the Apostle Paul. And so often, Lord, I know I speak for myself and so many in this room, when we find ourselves in a similar circumstance, paralyzed by fear, becoming the dominant emotion or dominant influence within, within our lives, it's so easy to believe that we're the only ones who ever go through these kind of things. And, and that isolation of mind and perspective only makes things worse. And we thank you, Lord, for the comfort that is ours to see that Paul went through it as well and to see what it was that you spoke to him and how faithful you were to him in his fear and in his crisis. And Lord, we know you'll be the same to us. We hate the fact that so often as we hit a new source of fear within our life, we engage it as if we'd never seen it before, never delivered from it before, uh, never experienced the supernatural of your faithfulness and taking us out of something that we thought you could only deliver us in one way. And then when ultimately you did, it was a marvel. It was supernatural. And Lord, we thank you so much that for that testimony that is in our own lives this morning, we pray for each one that is in that place today. We, we certainly don't envy them. Our heart goes out to them. We pray that you would baptize them and fill them with your Holy Spirit today and allow your peace, your wisdom, your direction, your truth, your Holy Spirit and faith to prevail in this season in their life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.